Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You're listening to Linux in the Ham Shack. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. And it's episode number 213 of Linux in the Ham Shack, and the three of us are here with you again after our week-long hiatus wherein we drove 4,000 miles in 10 days and did a few other things besides, but we're not going to talk about that. You can always come into the chat room sometime and, uh, you know, talk to us about anything. But tonight, we're going to talk about Linux and open source and amateur radio and all the stuff that we're supposed to talk about and not wander off. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> Oh, look, bunny. <laughs> yeah. Badger. Oh, yeah, there you go. All right, so the first thing I wanted to touch on was just a little pop-up topic about antennas, because I have an antenna, a long one, HF, dipole, Alpha Delta DXCC, 80 through 10, not including the work bands, but a tuner works great for that stuff. And the biggest problem I have with it is that it's oriented incorrectly, and the ends of it stretch longer than my house, and I have no way to put up the ends, except for maybe bury some telephone poles or put up. 20 feet of 2-inch PVC and bury that in the ground or something like that. So I've been looking for alternatives. And one of the alternatives I was looking for is an HF vertical, which they all sound great until you realize how much effort actually goes into putting up an HF vertical because 95% of an HF vertical is buried in the ground. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I was just going to put out a quick, you know, Maybe the folks in the chat room might have some ideas about what I can do about my antenna situation. Uh, literally, my antenna is pointed north-south, which for me being where I am is exactly wrong. It needs to be pointed east-west. And <clears throat> if I orient the antenna in that direction, there is literally nothing to attach it to. You can move your house. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's a rotate, just gonna rotate the, house. the house. Yeah. But <laughs> even if I rotate the house, the house still isn't long enough for the antenna. Well, that's true. So... The HF vertical things really got me annoyed because there is so much work involved in getting that up. And, you know, these uh, quick fix solutions like getting the diamond and the comet, you know, basically stick a wire up in the air with no counterpoise or anything like that, basically means you're, you know, having a super inefficient mm -hmm. uh, vertical antenna. So, you know, who's got some ideas? Give me some ideas. Tell me how to fix my problem without having to bury six miles of copper. Well, do you, do you have a mast? Let's start with that. I do have a mast, but to call it a mast is giving well, how it tall more. Is it? Well, it's uh, 25 feet. Okay. It's 25 so not feet. Too terrible. Tall. No, it's 25 feet and it's sitting um, on a deck, which is about five feet tall. So it's probably 30 feet. But the okay. antenna is, the, the horizontal antenna is mounted five feet down from the top because there is also a two meter 440 vertical at the peak right and this is what you have your uh <clears throat> your alpha delta connected to yes okay 
Well, I mean, you could do a couple things. You could go with a vertical, an all-band vertical solution, which, of course, as you go lower in frequency, it becomes more and more compromised. So there is a trade-off there. You can get these fancy verticals with a million bands and everything else, but you uh, you need to be able to uh, maintain some electrical length there to uh, maintain your efficiency. And then you had the other discussion, you know, 5 million radials in the ground, which, you know, realistically, you don't have to do that. Um, you, you can start small and then start adding to it as you uh, notice performance differences. Um, you know, there's also the point of diminished returns where you put too many, uh, <laughs> too many radials down and now you, uh, you have a huge problem. Uh, so I wouldn't do that either. Um, but for the short pole, uh, you know, if you want to cover 20 and up, you know, one of these little scouts from radio waves, uh, or, uh, MFJ has one as well for about like 250, 260 is the, uh, is the, uh, um, the cobweb antenna. You don't have to worry about a rotator or anything else. And, uh, basically it's, it's a folded upon itself dipole, uh, for those bands. And I think you can even get it up to 40 meters, although I wouldn't recommend it when you go up to 40 meters and higher, I would, I would definitely recommend a vertical, um, and uh, I would do that for the upper bands because you don't have to rotate it. Being closer to the ground is not that uh, bad for that particular antenna because it, it deals with that quite well. Um, and for vertical, what's he putting there? An Alpha Pro Master Senior, huh? Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> um, there's a couple of problems I should probably add to this whole mix. The first is the Alpha Delta that I have goes from 80 to 10, like I already said, but it has three elements. It has a 10 slash 20 element. It has a 40 element and it has an 80 element. So it has traps on it. Uh, it has traps on the 80. Yeah. And then it just basically has three pieces of wire, which are connected in the center and there, and there's, they have standoffs to separate them. Mm -hmm. So there are actually three different radiating elements and the 10, 20 and the 40 are fine. Because right now they're being supported by the 80. Right. So it's the it's the low frequencies that is my issue. And as far as putting up a vertical and like burying radial wire, um, I could do that for sure. But the soil here is not soil. It's an inch of dirt and six feet of shale. Yeah. So I can't really bury anything and if i'm going to put radials down it has to be buried because you know i have to mow the lawn uh well you can uh you see now you can cut the grass real low and then lose use lawn staples on the wire and just allow the grass to grow over it so you don't technically have to bury it yeah i just i don't if like that if option. your grass actually grows decent enough then you can actually let the grass take it over it doesn't <laughs> the grass oh, okay. is we we have like 17 different kinds of grass and it uh, so it's weeds. It's basically, basically weeds, yeah. yes. Weeds that do a coverage thing. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> weeds yeah. weeds that cover the rocks. So I'm actually yeah, kind of surprised our lawn isn't entirely moss, but Yeah. Well, uh, I would do exactly what I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would uh I would I would really consider um that uh that that um cobweb for your upper bands and then get something like the uh like the DX Voyager from Gap. Because it only requires one counterpoise. Because most of the metal is up in the air. And then you just guy it and you're done. <laughs> and okay. that gives you 160, uh, 160, 80, 40, 20 on that. Although, 
you don't really have to use it for uh, 20, whatever. And then I would use something else for your 20 and up that's a little bit more efficient and preferably horizontally polarized like the cobweb. Because you don't really want a horizontally polarized antenna for 40 and up unless you have a beam. <laughs> and yes, I do not have a beam. <laughs> yeah. So then I would go vertical on that. And, uh, you know, you can even use one of those multi-band verticals. Again, you're going to start losing from the top end. You know, that 43-footer works pretty well. Um, you know, 80, you're, you're probably down in the, you know, I'm, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but you know, probably like the 50 or 60% range for efficiency. So that means that most of your signal, a good portion of your signal is not actually being radiated. And then when you get to 160, which if you can even tune it, most people, you need a, a tuning stub and stuff like that for it. Um, you know, you're, you're just putting a little squeak of a signal out there. Now yeah. the uh, the disadvantage with the DX Voyager is that you uh, you have very small bandwidth on 160, so like its actual tuned range is really really small. So depending upon your activity in 160, you tune it to where you use it the most. You know, if you're going to do FT8 or whatever on it, you just tune it for that, and that's what you that's what you leave it at. That way, it's always perfect for that, and everything else is a compromise beyond that. Now, if you use one of those, uh, you know, like zero uh, five or whatever, what was that brand? Zero something? Zero uh, five. Yeah, zero five. Okay, so yeah, yeah that's the same thing. You get the same piece of metal, forty three foot from anything. You don't have to buy one from them. They just you know sell you a pretty decent aluminum. You can get the aluminum directly from DX Engineering and make your own. <clears throat> they have plenty of kits you can do that with as well. It's not not any different uh, mechanically or electronically. Let's say it's the exact same electronics. Um, but if you do that, then you want to invest in a in a remote tuner. I would definitely put a tuner at the base of the antenna. And tune it out at the antenna. Don't tune the feed line to the antenna because that's that's where you're losing most of your signal. Now you do that solution. You know, you spend a lot more because that stupid remote tuner is going to be like three, four hundred bucks. Yeah, you know, if you run power, then obviously you need a, a much bigger one to do that. Um, you know, then then that's yeah, that's an option. And if you use the remote tuner, you can just use it for all bands, and then you know it gets a little twitchy up in the upper bands. But you know, tens never open. Who cares? <laughs> All right. Well, I don't want to go too much further into this. So if anyone has any suggestions, this is not our deep dive. That's next week. <laughs> so if anyone has any suggestions about antennas and what I could do to kind of get a good range, 80 through 10, uh, 160 is kind of optional. I don't really, you know, even if I can get QRP out on 160 on whatever solution I have, that'll work. So I don't know, just uh, email me or get in touch with me on IRC or whatever, and let's talk antenna. Sweet. All right, so let's move on. Let's move on to some uh, amateur radio topics. And uh, you have uh, actually done a lot of the work for us since we were gone last week, so I really <laughs> appreciate that. But I guess we'll let you uh, talk about uh, the Voyager. Okay, so the HF Voyager runs into power constraints. So for those of you that haven't heard about this HF Voyager, it, uh, it's from the Jupiter Research Foundation Amateur Radio Club, the JRFARC, uh, they have an integrated HF transceiver with an autonomous uh, ocean-going drone. Uh, their mission is to deploy a ham radio station that roams the world's oceans while providing an opportunity for amateur radio operators everywhere to make contacts with rare locations. Um, this is the little boat that could, and it's now running to limitations on it as power source. Uh, so basically it has a whole bunch of uh, solar panels on it and batteries and I believe a KX3 um, that's driving the, some digital modes that the, their club members can use uh, remotely from, uh, from the, one of the islands of Hawaii. And, um, and yeah, so uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting little project. Uh, so basically you can work all kinds of grids out in the ocean uh, on HF and uh, stuff through the, 
through uh, like FT8. I think they've been running FT8 and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, the last I heard, and uh, hopefully their their batteries are getting charged back up. They've had some problems there in the Pacific because that's where it's at right now. And uh, the weather out there hasn't been conducive to actually getting uh, sun. So uh, the the solar powered uh, solar powered uh, charging system is not charging. But uh, it's an interesting little project. You should check it out. The uh, link is in the show notes. So is this like Maritime Mobile? Is it what? Maritime Mobile? Because isn't it? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So I I thought it originally that it was like fully autonomous, including the station. And I'm like, well, you can't really do that. But uh, apparently they they remote into it. Um, I'm assuming via some satellite, uh, you know, internet and uh, control the station from that. All right. Very cool. Everybody should check that out because it does sound like a cool little project. We talk about things in the sky a lot. We don't really talk about stuff on the water very much. Um, all right. So you also have a story in here about doing de-expeditions with WSJTX in easy mode because it's like <laughs> it has like an easy button now. It has an easy button, yeah. This is a de-expeditions on easy mode. So we're just off the heels of the big test of uh, uh, Joe Taylor's uh, WSJTX uh, 1.9. This is a test version that's out with, and it has the FT8 de-expedition mode. Uh, And there was a field test uh, that about 500 participants participated in. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I started started thinking about this thing that can uh, answer back to multiple stations and stuff like that. You know, uh, you probably don't uh, you don't need to throw a lot of money at a de-expedition that's running FT8 only. And uh, if they can uh, semi-automate some of their processing of multiple signals, uh, you really could just send a couple of guys with a couple of verticals and uh, some computers and uh, call it good. You don't need to haul out all this equipment and these uh, operators that can copy CW and stuff like that because uh, uh, most of you know that uh, FT8 is uh, is performing quite well. <laughs> <laughs> comparatively to CW in, uh, in uh, you know, meager conditions. So uh, I was wondering, I was like, is this the end of the big money de-expeditions? No, I wouldn't think so. As long as people want to go spend a lot of time in remote, cold places, um, <laughs> then there will always be de-expeditions. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, there's an article out on the AWRL uh, news page about it. And, of course, there's a note from uh, K1JT about the uh, the actual mode itself and how it works. All right, very cool. And FT8, since it's uh, very quick on the QSO front, it's not as quick as voice, but it's kind of up there in the digital spectrum. So you could probably hammer through some pileups using FT8 because you can uh, get through QSO pretty quickly. Well, yeah, they're shortening it so you actually can answer back more than one station at a time. That's that's the key. So did you actually look at the mode? Because I didn't actually uh, take oh, go a look through the documentation. Mode. Yeah, yeah. So I, I looked through the mode. It, it basically allows the operator to... Uh, on the de-expedition side, to be able to answer back to more than one participant at one time. And it kind of blocks off, like, the lower edge of the frequency uh, spectrum. So they wouldn't do this, actually, on the calling frequency. You'd go and set your own little frequency and, uh, you know, run splits just like they do now. And uh, you would just be answering back, and you could answer multiple stations at one time. Uh, very cool. So, yeah, if you're the, is there a limit to the number of stations you can reply at any one time, or is it just... Uh, I th- think so and i think it's operator initiated so i don't think it's fully automated i didn't go into that much detail into it but i did notice that it could answer back to at least two call signs at once so that's uh obviously that means you know every uh 15 second cycle you're you're taking care of two extra QSOs. yeah that's really nice with the digital modes being able to see the entire passband and look and see like because there could be six contacts at once coming into your station and you can actually see all of them because the computer can decode the entire passband. 
Yeah. Whereas uh, a single human operator would have difficulty with that. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, you know, my concern, of course, is like running fully automated. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, the control operator just sits there and watches uh, the cues uh, line up and stuff like that. So he's the keystone cop. <laughs> make sure everything runs sort of okay. Well, I don't want to be charging a, like, you know, $10 for a QSO card if they're, uh, you know, having the easy mode button. Come well, on. Well, that's true. I understand that. Yeah, you want somebody to do a little bit of work. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, very good. Check out WSJTX's uh, de-expedition mode. And uh, if you don't want to do that, you know, you could just get a bunch of guys together and some money and go find a cold, wet island somewhere and do your own. Yeah, CQ, CQ. <laughs> All right, so moving on, we're going to touch on some open source topics. And the first one is, when does the beaver get home? And we're not talking about that old 60s TV show. We're talking about the new version of Ubuntu. Go, Bill. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no it's kind of all you, except for the next one. I'll let, uh, yes. I'll let Cheryl do the next one, since that one's easy. And then I'll oh, do the okay. one after that. So There you go. All there right. Got to spread the any, love. Not just any old beaver. This is the Bionic Beaver, and it's landing in late April as Ubuntu's 1804 LTS release, uh, and that's coming into shape. Uh, as you know, that they did have a 1704, and a lot of people got that confused, and they thought it was the LTS, but uh, they only re- release a long-term uh, support release every two years. So our last one was 1604. This one's 1804. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of flavors have been out there hitting the tech sites with their uh, beta builds this week. Uh, it's all beta one for Ubuntu Buji and uh, Ubuntu Mate. So they're out there and they're getting the news out and they're telling everybody what they're doing and all the improvements they're making. And uh, I, I happen to take 1804 for a spin here on uh, on my machine uh, that, I, I, that I use uh, as my workstation here, but I switched that back to Solus. <clears throat> I couldn't take it anymore. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I no, I switched get... it back to Solus just because I wanted back to Solus on there. Um, but uh, yeah, I took it for a spin because they've been talking about this high DPI support, and uh, that's all I've heard uh, out of you lately in the chat yeah. room is high DPI, high DPI. Well, not yeah. all of us have 4K displays, Bill. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this I have a I have a Dell XPS 13. It's the 9365. This is the you know 13 inch laptop with a 4K screen. How useless is that? Uh, <laughs> besides that being obnoxious, I figured I'll go ahead and give it a try. And uh, I tried uh, Mate, and uh, I just I didn't like it. It wasn't grooving on it, so I'm like, ah, fine, I'll, I'll go to I'll go to Ubuntu Buji. So I tried to set up my whole workflow and everything else, and I, I kind of got things configured, you know, because you can do the scaling now with the you know the the the, the uh, sorry the <laughs> you have the display scaling, which is at like 100 percent, 200 percent, 300 percent. All those and pixels you, fry in your brain or what? Right. And then you have like the <laughs> font scaling as well. So in order to accomplish this on a 4K screen that's really tiny, you have to kind of, you know, adjust your 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 100%, 200%, you know, down to like 100% and then start messing around with the font scaling or you go to 200% and rotate the font scaling down. Now, uh, you can get to a happy medium where it sort of looks okay, um, but... <laughs> I ran into problems as soon as I put Chrome on there because Chrome did not want to play well with the others. And although the sizing looked right from the scaling, like there was just something, something happening with, with Chrome. Like when I would roll my mouse over it and you know, when you roll over a link, it turns the little hand and stuff like that. Um, 
it wouldn't do that right away. It was almost like it was having problems figuring out where the mouse was on the actual window of Chrome. And, you know, it also looked a little fuzzy. It wasn't quite, uh, didn't quite look like it was being rendered the same exact way as the rest of the desktop. The rest of the desktop looked really, really good. So, I mean, if you didn't use Chrome and you use, let's say, Firefox or something like that, you probably would have a different experience. Um, but my particular workflow includes using Chrome for a lot of stuff. So it didn't really work out that well for me. I did, I did enjoy it, but I think there's still, we got a ways to go. I think the, the big problem is with the display scaling itself, that being set to an integer base where it's only one, two, or three for 100, 200, 300. There's no increments in between there. And I really think that's where, that's where you need to be able to adjust it. When you screw around with the fonts, the rest of the UI doesn't play well with that. Like title bars don't want to shrink down and stuff like that. So I think it's a it's a huge compromise. It's a huge compromise. I mean, you can still make it look okay, but it's not going to look the way it was intended to look. So I think I think we still have quite a ways to go for these like you know 4K screens that they're putting on all these small devices because they want them to be tablets and stuff like that for Windows 10 and stuff. So so anyway, I, I took my XPS 13 and it's, and it's running Windows 10 again. So. <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. It was nice. It was really nice while it was running. It was fast and everything else. I just uh, I use Chrome too much for it to look like uh, look like crap. So uh, I'll have to pass for now. Hopefully, in the next uh, you know you know six months to a year, they're still working on getting high DVI perfected. And uh, as soon as they uh, break that uh, integer bound uh, uh, scaling on the display, I think uh, I think they'll get closer. So uh, I'm waiting until that happens. But other than that, the, the 1804 builds look great. Uh, both Mate and Budgie look, Budgie look great, as usual. And uh, I think you'll really like the, the latest, greatest Budgie on that. It really looks sharp. They have a nice theme that they're using and everything else. So I was, I was really impressed with uh, the package they put together. All right, very good. Sounds sounds excellent, actually. And I did look at the screenshots for both Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu Budgie, and they... They both look very nice. Budgie has always been a very sexy desktop, and it's no different now, that's for sure, especially not even in the uh, Ubuntu version, even though it's a soulless native desktop. So it's not, not quite as uh, full performance as it is on Solus, but it's uh, it works well. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, there's I, a, Solus is still using G, uh, GNOME, so it's still using GNOME 3. Yeah, there is an easy fix for your problem, Bill, to stop using high DPI monitors. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I tried ripping it off the top of the screen here, but it just doesn't want to detach. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but I have to tell you, de-delling my laptop because I I got the box and it had like the Dell install of Windows 10 on it, and we didn't really do much to it when I got it because I kind of needed it to switch over right away. Uh, going fresh and resetting the BIOS completely uh, really makes a difference. I mean, the thing uh, runs way faster than it ever did. My uh, my hibernation problems went away. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it runs a, a heck of a lot faster and, and nicer now. So, all right, very good. So, since Cheryl's been very quiet sitting over there next to me, I guess we can let you do a story. I'm not sitting next to you. You're sitting across from me. That's next to me. Not not really. But I think okay, if you draw whatever. the Venn diagram and the intersection of across uh, from me and what, next uh, for me, yeah, I think okay. they're in the same thing. All right, whatever. Anyway. So do it <laughs> <laughs> so the next topic is the time for discourse having maintained their support around a multitude of sites irc and social media platforms the team over at ubuntu budgie has decided that with the move to 1804 lts they will be moving all of their support to discourse excuse me 
This should provide a place where users can search for answers and, whoa, wait a second, are we moving back to forums again? Well, first of all, we've never moved away from forums. That's so that's true. <laughs> there, there are still forums out there, and, and isn't Reddit like just a giant group of forums? So Yeah, yeah, basically, uh, yeah. You know, but they want to move a lot of their support back from you know, answering questions in the IRC and they're, uh, you know, using Discord and Telegram and all these other new uh, web 10.0 uh, uh, social media solutions for uh, interacting their users back to uh, one platform. Everybody can find the answers and also, you know, share their hints and kinks, I'm assuming. Yeah, I just, it's kind of like a new solution to an old problem or an old solution to an old problem or something. I yeah. Don't know. <laughs> yeah. Full circle. <laughs> but, just remember that if you want to get in contact with them, Discourse is the place to go. And do do you have an account on Discourse? Because I don't think I do. Uh, I don't know. I think you do. it's it's per website, so it's not like it's uh it's not like Discord. Oh, okay. So you're thinking Discord probably. Probably there's so many different ways to talk to people anymore, except for actually using your voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I first saw this too, I was like Discord. Oh wait, no, it's not. Discourse is something else. That's why I went to the site. I'm like, oh, it's 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 a forum. It's, uh... <laughs> right. So it's like uh, PHPBB, but it's called Discourse. Yeah, it's really it's really geared towards a development project, though. So it really looks good. All right. Very Apparently cool. Apparently it's paid, though. Well, it's probably being paid by the people who host it, not by the people who use it. That would be my yeah, guess. Let's see here. $100. You get a free 14-day trial. 100,000 monthly page views, 10 gigs of storage. So, yeah, it's right. obviously... It's, yeah, it's by the people who host it, not right. by the people who use it. Right. So Yeah. Which makes sense. That's that's the model it should be using. All right, so we're going to move on from our open source topics to... No, no, we're not. We still have one more open source topic, and that is picking the right license for your open source project. And uh, there's a site out there that is gives you a kind of a quick flow chart into choosing an open source license for you. Uh, it gives you a couple of checkboxes, like what kind of project are you doing and what does that project need to have for the access to source code and do you want it to be copy left and do you want it to be progressive and do you want people to be able to do what they want or do you want to retain some rights? And it sort of walks you through a quick and dirty way of choosing an open source license for your project. The thing that I found out about this uh, particular website is that it's not very flexible. It only sort of points you in a couple of specific directions. Uh, one being like permissive, like the MIT based license. Another one being, uh, I forget what the terminology they use, but they, they cite the Apache license. And then they also cite copyleft licenses like the GPL. But there are a million licenses out there, um, including others besides those. But one thing it does have is links to other resources and also discusses what you do with your project if you decide not to choose a specific license. What kind of rights do you have and what, where the direction of your project will be if you choose not to explicitly license a certain way. So, I mean, there is something there, um, but I found it a little too uh, restrictive in its choices. I think uh, something with a few more options and maybe a few more checkboxes might have been a little more useful. Yeah, I'm sure they'll probably grow it a little bit. But uh, it was kind of interesting because it also showed, like, which projects uh, that people would know, like, what they're using for their license and stuff like that. So it kind of gave some examples of products. So it was still pretty interesting. 
Well, one thing about products that people use is very few people are interested in what the license of the product is. You know, and the people who do probably already have been down this road before. Most people, it's like, is it free? Does it work? Okay, good enough. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, if you're just getting into the development side of things, I can see where this might be useful. Right. Um, but if you're if you're an end user or a hardcore developer already, yeah, just uh, pass this one by. Yeah, yeah. So they do have the I want more choices link too, and they give you the GNU AGPL and GPL and LGPL and Mozilla and Apache and MIT and the unlicensed license. <laughs> so there, what? there's some other stuff there, but yeah, they were talking about. Yeah, you want a simple and permissive. You got like .NET Core is licensed under that. Rails, you know, Ruby on Rails is licensed under that. You're concerned about patents, you know, Elasticsearch, Kubernetes, Swift, all use those licenses. You know, Swift is uh, Apple's uh, little uh, programming language. Uh, then, of course, the GNU GPL, you got GIMP and Ansible and Bash. So there but you go. They See, they, they totally don't cite the buy me a beer license. So <laughs> just just forget that site entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we can talk about that. Yeah, All right. So moving on. We have kind of a quasi-announcement about something we're going to try and do for Hamvention, it, which may or may not happen. So you want to take this one? Yeah, yeah. We're working on We've been talking about it over the past few episodes. We're working on uh, the uh, LHS live distro. Uh, so instead of just the plain Jane ham, uh, pure blend for Debian, we're going to try to build our own Debian 9.4 release uh, with, uh, you know, live booting CD with the ham radio pure blend packages, as well as app pinning some, uh, some of the newer stuff for CQR log and uh, anything else we can find new. We might even have to build out uh, that uh, the project we did with the FL Digi to get it up to date as well. That way you can have the latest, greatest applications on there, download the latest uh, WSJTX on there, and hopefully it'll boot. And if it works, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, mint that to the CDs that we bring to Hamvention this year. And uh, they'll still be, what, what are they running this year? $3, same as last year? Three whole bucks. Yep. Three whole dollars. It'll probably be the cheapest thing you buy there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure because I don't think you can even get a hot dog for three bucks. No. All right. Now, do we need to build like 32-bit and 64-bit or just... Uh, 32-bit or? Um, I'm going to have mostly 64-bit, but we probably do need to have 32-bit because I know how ham radio operators are, and a lot of them use a lot of legacy hardware, and some yeah. of that hardware is not going to support 64-bit operating systems. So uh, I'll see what I can do on building out both builds. Let's what, see if I can get one going first. What, what I've done in the past is only had 32-bit builds. That way... You, we were covered on both both spectrum both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, because because thirty two bit will run on anything. Um, but it's probably time at this point to migrate to mostly sixty four bit builds because I think that that will be the majority of users. Yeah, yeah, most likely, most likely. Well, I'll try with the sixty four bit first and see if I get that working, and then if I have time, I'll I'll circle back around and we'll see if I can build a thirty two bit one. All right, sounds good. So finally, in our open source topics, or our Linux in the Hamshack topics, actually, we kind of switched gears there, and I don't think I, I mentioned it, but um, we also have a new mention of WSJTX because they've released a release candidate 2 of the 1.9 version, or the 1.9 train, and this one's got all kinds of adjustments in it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a release candidate, so they say, be careful, don't run this in production and whatever you do don't transmit with it but of course no one ever listens to that kind of thing 
Uh, we talked about the FDA de-expedition mode earlier in the show, and that's one of the improvements that's in there. Uh, there's also a priority decoding for JT65. There's auto sequencing in JT4, JT9, and JT65. Hmm, I wonder if uh, someone like with my name mentioned that in an earlier episode. <laughs> Uh, now that's only when VHF UHF microwave features are enabled. But you probably can use, still use it on HF. Probably, uh, I'm sure that's coming if it's not in there yet. So yeah, just uh, click the box. There's also better suppression of low confidence false decodes generated by uh, decoding in FT8 mode. Improved decoding performance for whisper mode. Whisper. Um, there's also minor adjustments to the auto sequencing behavior. More flexible Doppler control for EME. That's one thing I haven't done unless I did it accidentally. Um, <laughs> improved waterfall sensitivity for weak signals. Automatic real-time forwarding of logged information to N1MM Logger Plus. I assume that's a Windows-only feature. Yeah. And uh, expanded and improved UDP messages sent to companion programs. And yeah. the link to WSJTX, of course, will be in the show notes. It's been in the show notes probably in 20 of our episodes because we oh, talk yeah. about <laughs> WSJTX a lot. But um, it is definitely the flagship product for open source ham radio software yeah and i installed it just to take a look at it and uh yeah the decodes are fast they're much faster than they were i don't know if it's just me paying attention to it but i noticed that i was getting a whole lot more decodes and they were like just zipping in Uh, as soon as the uh, transmission was over it was like it was instantaneous So whatever they're doing, they're doing it right, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's quite amazing. Yeah, one thing I've noticed about using WSJTX in FT8 mode is because everyone is using FT8 mode now. It used to be that you could pop on to JT9 and JT65, and whenever your decode cycle would finish, you'd have maybe five or six contacts or something like that. So you could uh, pick and choose what you wanted to respond to. Uh, with FT8, I get about four pages of things to decode. Um, because there are so many signals on the wire, um, then that it's a little bit confusing and I don't have a high DPI screen real estate. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, Uh, you know, this might be your chance to invest, right? (laughs) Perhaps so. Sounds like a very, uh, first world problem, but then, uh, you know, WSGTX is is pretty great. So yeah, it runs great in Linux. uh, It's just, yeah, it barrels through the contacts and everything else. So. So kudos to those guys for putting out a great cross-platform application. Yep, the best probably. I I would I would put it out there that it's the best cross-platform Linux application for ham radio. Yeah. All right. So Cheryl, you're back up again. We're, <sighs> we're down to the social media roundup. Yep, we definitely are. And so. uh, there's a, a pretty good list. Yeah, so. I, I see that. That's what <laughs> happens when you take off on vacation. I guess so. Yep. So this week for Patreons, we have John Spriggs. Steve Sainer, Donald Gover, Robert Pitts, Paul Griffith, Jonas Rulo, John Saruba Jr., Samuel Vimes, and Steve Metcalf. And I would like to add here that for those that are subscribing, they would appreciate the move to Patreon, but it is not required. So for subscriptions this week, we have Michael Jopling, Steve Nichols, Todd Bowers, Thor Wiegman, Stephen Harp, Charlie Brown, Kevin Murray, Wayne Carpenter, Doug Redder, Bill Piotr, Darren King, Dylan Engel, Stephen Sainer, Alan Wilson, Donald Gover, John Clark, Michael Aiello, Robert Halliday, Brian Smith, Johnny Kinsey, Ronald Ike, Robert Yerke, 
Michael Connolly, Jeremy Hall, and Jonas Rulo. Now, before you move on, there's a couple of those with asterisks, and I want to mention those. Uh, Steve Sainer, Donald Gover, and Jonas Rulo are in the list twice because they currently have active PayPal subscriptions and are supporting us on Patreon, which we will definitely encourage. But I just want to put it out there that if they decide they don't want to do both, um, that they should just uh, go ahead and cancel their PayPal subscriptions and stick with Patreon. And if they want to, uh, and they're doing this on purpose, supporting us both ways, then uh, awesome. (laughs) So. Muchos gracias. Yes. So, for Facebook this week, we have Corey Kubiak, Paul Cole, and Met Tainer Can. Uh, that's Paul Cody, probably. Oh, sorry. Oh, and you're you're fine. Yeah, I need. It's it, it's small print. Yeah, it's I know. glasses. Yeah. yeah, I need new glasses. Um, excuse me, Paul Cody and Met Tainer Can, and I probably butchered that one too. So Google Plus, nobody joined us this week. On Twitter, we have loose. Excuse me. Lucas, C-U-N-H-A-1982, Atari Bill, Jaw6565, John Cool555, Ham Radio Canada, uh, Chimino7777, Badger underscore Phi, and March Assault 1. On YouTube, we have Jim Newman, Caffrey9, Anthony Baris, Vuco Windows, or Vico Windows, and Vit uh Rosinius, Rosinius. uh on the mailing list steve n1tux joined us and there were no merchandise sales all right that takes us down to the end so i guess we'll take a quick look in the chat room and see who's in there uh i noticed that don kc9zmy is in there don kb2ysi is in there steve k7hvt is in there ted wa0eir is in there and I don't want to miss anyone. Am I missing anyone? Let me see. Who else was in there? Oh, we had uh, Dave, VK6EK. Is there anyone else? Miss anyone? There's lots of other people in the chat room, but they're not they're not active. They're all sleeping or, or whatever normal people do on yeah, Monday nights. I think VE6SAR was there or before Darren. the show. Oh, Darren. Why did I say Dave? I don't know. <laughs> I know I know your name, Darren, is Darren King, because we have lots of Vegemite, thanks to you. <laughs> um, for some reason, I, I had I had the D right, and the A right, and the E right, I just threw a V in. Um, okay. <laughs> my brain works in mysterious ways. There's KA7HVT saying hi. Yep. Everybody's saying hi. Everybody's waving, doing IRC hel- hello type things. Right. Yes. Some star hug star. <laughs> right, yeah. No, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, did you catch Lunduke's show on that? No, I didn't, but I'll have to watch that. It was quite enjoyable. <laughs> All then. I'm glad we beat him to the punch. Though. Okay, cool. <laughs> Anytime we can beat Brian Lunduke to the punch, I consider it a win. All right, I think that's it. So thanks, everybody, for listening to the live stream, if you did happen to do that, or for visiting us in the chat room, if you did that, or if you didn't do either of those things, thank you for downloading and listening to us. We really appreciate it. And I will say right before we sign off that the Indiegogo, and it will be Indiegogo this time, campaign for Hamvention will be live very, very shortly, and there will be announcements all over everywhere about that. So look for it. And we'll only have about 45 days that we can run the campaign because we're going to actually run into Hamvention at that point. So uh, just keep an eye out for it, and we'll let you know what's going on. 
So thanks again, and I guess we're going to sign off. I'm Russ, K5TUX. That's Cheryl over there. Good night, everyone. And Bill. 73. We'll see you on Thursday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info. You can support the program by visiting the LHS Patreon page of patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or using the contribute link on the website. Get in touch via social media. The show has a presence on Google+, Facebook, Twitter, Discord and YouTube. Or you can drop an email to info at lhspodcast.info or record a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the IRC channel, LHS Podcast, on the Freenode IRC network. Also visit the online merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable LHS merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a Linux convention or ham fest. Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info or visit the website for details. The podcast is recorded live every Monday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Connect to the stream at stream.blacksparrowmedia.net colon 8008 stroke LHS live. Until next time, over and out. Linux in the Ham Shack and the Linux in the Ham Shack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribute Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.